Paul has left Athens and continues on his missionary journey. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every, Saturday, every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter among yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off as sent Korea because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, 
I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew from Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he, was a, when he arrived, he was a great help to those who, by grace, had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you believe? Did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied. They were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jill. <clears throat> well, good evening, everyone. Great to see you. Um, let's pray together as we come to this passage. Lord God, we read in the Psalms, the psalmist writes, Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that 
that truth would be real for each of us tonight, that you would show us things in this passage that will help us to be better disciples and to be better at discipling others. Please speak to us by your spirit, I pray. Amen. Great. It's a slightly strange passage in a way, isn't it? You kind of had that read and you're thinking, so it's lots of description, lots of things that were going on, but kind of what's the point? What's the message in that passage? And we're going to come to think about that. As Neil said, I'm, I'm hoping to sort of use this passage to tee up the series that we're going to be thinking of in the coming weeks on discipleship, because there's some really amazing things in this chapter 18 and the first part of 19 that help us to think about the way that Paul discipled. And I hope it will be helpful for us. I'm sure we'll be familiar with the Great Commission, and uh, I'm sure it's been pointed out before that when Jesus gave these instructions to his disciples, he didn't say, go and make converts. In other words, he's saying, he didn't say, your focus should simply be to help people to become under God Christian believers, and then the job is done. It's interesting that the command was to make disciples. Starts with people professing faith in Jesus, but isn't an end point. Jesus' desire for us is that we become ever more into his likeness and so discipleship is about growing about changing uh, and this is the command that we have so i'd like to start by helping us to think a little bit uh, by using those words on the screen um over on this side as it were uh, i'll go this side because it mirrors what's on your screen there we go think about evangelism evangelism is, is proclaiming the gospel to people who don't yet know it and that's difficult isn't it it can be daunting talking to people who don't know Christ. We can face rejection. We can feel inadequate. And so evangelism is an important part of what it means to be a Christian, but so easy we can shy away from it. The other end of the sort of spectrum is, again, an equally important thing for us as Christians to think of, discipleship, helping Christians to mature. mature. But again, discipleship can be costly. It's not easy to look a brother and a sister in the eye and hold that person accountable it's not easy to keep unity with brothers and sisters who have hurt us and to ask and seek for forgiveness. Um, it's not easy to spend time getting in each other's lives to help one another grow. It's so easy instead to focus on our own walk with the Lord. And so these two extremes of evangelism and discipleship are really important, but for different reasons, we can easily shy away from them. And what can always often happen in churches is that we kind of just get lost in the middle, which, as the screen says, in a kind of comfortable place where we're not really being challenged, but if we're honest, we're not really growing, and we're not being faithful to the Great Commission. And so it takes great effort and a great grace of God to reorientate the priorities of our hearts and to help cut through the kind of busyness of our lives that we can be intentional and say, well, what is the purpose of my life? If these things are important, evangelism and discipleship, but we're not very good at them, what could we do as individuals, what could we do as a church to help one another? because these things really matter. In another sense, if we want to be a church that grows in maturity, then we've got to spend time thinking about evangelism and thinking about discipleship. Um, If we don't and we just stay comfortable, we'll end up being a very immature people, both individually and corporately. So we're going to come to have a look at this passage. And remember, as Simon helpfully showed us last week, we're coming to the end of Paul's second missionary journey. We got to the end of it um, in chapter 18, verse 22, and then the third journey begins. Uh, Notice that the journey began over here in Jerusalem, and they've been trekking west. You remember from chapter 16, where there's this vision that Paul has got, come over to Macedonia, that's Greece. 
And so the gospel for the first time has entered into Europe. And we had that amazing story in Acts chapter 16, different lives transformed by the grace of God. And then Paul and his traveling companions head down the east coast through the sea here, down through Greece to Athens where we were last week. And now we've got to Corinth. We know from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that as Paul approached Corinth, this is how he was feeling because he says this in his letter. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Why would that have been the way that Paul felt when he went to this great city of Corinth? Well, here are a few uh, interesting facts and figures about this city. Just to set a bit of a context, this was a city that in that day and age had over 650,000 people in a population. That's a huge city by ancient standards. You can see on the map that it's down here, very thin bit of land. So there were two ports on the east and the west. So it was a major military and commercial center. Uh, it contained very powerful law courts. If you know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians and what the Christians were getting involved in with um, suing one another, which is not a good thing. Um, this is because there was a big thing going on in Corinth with the law courts. Uh, Corinth hosted the Ithmian Games. That was a kind of second only to the uh, ancient Olympic Games that took place in Rome. Uh, in the center of Corinth was a great idol worship centered around the goddess Artemis, the Roman name Diana. Uh, and Corinth was a place that prided itself on wealth, on knowledge, and on power. So it should be no surprise to us when we read the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul writes to try and address some of these issues because there's pride in Corinth, there's immaturity, there's immorality. It's a daunting place for Paul to have gone. And of course, we know he's going on next to Ephesus over here, to another great um, pagan religion, worshipping the goddess uh, Artemis. So Paul was daunted when he came to this place. Uh, He was a Christian living in tough times. He was going to... Uh, make disciples in a tough environment. And in many ways, we're living in tough times today. If you're a Christian, you're in the minority. And it would be so easy for us, because of that, to just be comfortable. Because evangelism is difficult when we get rejected. Because discipleship is challenging and time-consuming. It's easy just to get comfortable. But we need to grow if we're going to mature. And so discipleship really matters. And what I'd like to look at this evening is three kind of marks of discipleship that we see in this passage. Three things that I hope will provide a bit of a context for the series that Neil's going to be leading us through in the coming weeks, which I'm really looking forward to. So the first thing you see in this passage, which helps us, the first kind of mark of discipleship, particularly evident in the life of Paul, is that of perseverance. Just come to chapter 18. Notice in chapter 18, verse 6, that Paul is facing opposition and abuse. Here it's primarily from the Jews. It says in verse 6, when the Jews opposed Paul, they became abusive. But wonderfully, you see in verse 9, that Paul persevered despite that. Do you see verse 9? God comes to him and speaks to him in a vision and says, Paul, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. And then you see this great example of perseverance in verse 11. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, 18 months, teaching them the word of God. Something really significant here. It doesn't say Paul stayed for 18 months. What did Paul stay doing? Teaching them the word of God. And if you go back to verse 5, what is the very thing that was causing them to face opposition and abuse? Verse 5. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And this, verse 6, is what caused the Jews to oppose him. 
quite a subtle thing we could even easily miss, but Paul is persevering despite persecution. It'd be very easy for him just to have stayed there and stayed comfortable, waiting for things to get easier, but he didn't. He persevered in preaching the gospel. And this perseverance cost him greatly. And remember, this isn't the first time he suffered. What happened in Acts chapter 16? Paul had been in prison with Silas. In chapter 17 in Thessalonica, there had been a great riot because he had preached the word of God. He had had struggles and opposition in Athens, which we were, where we were last week. It's not easy for Paul. And he's going to go on to Ephesus, and it's going to be tough again. And in these moments, it's so, so easy just to seek a comfortable life, because proclaiming the gospel and persevering as a Christian, if we're serious about discipleship, is hard and it costs us. But Paul perseveres. I hope that... His example of perseverance will inspire you to persevere in your own situation where evangelism and discipleship is difficult. Um, I hope in different ways it might rebuke you as it's rebuked me and challenged me. Am I serious about making disciples? Am I prepared for the cost? Um, But I hope particularly that it will comfort us because here is a man who by the grace of God perseveres in the proclamation of the gospel and God's grace is with him and helps him. And the gospel continues to spread. Now, I don't want to put words into the mouth of um, Neil or Wellesley or Grant, the other pastors, but I'm sure they would agree with me. If you wanted to pray one thing for the pastors of this church, and indeed pastors all over the place, please pray for our perseverance. And probably the biggest thing that's the most difficult in Christian ministry is facing discouragement and persevering. It can be really hard when you're preaching the word of God and sometimes it doesn't feel like lives are changing, your own life or other people's lives. Please pray that we would persevere. No doubt like the people who were supporting Paul prayed for his perseverance. Because friends, perseverance is one of the key marks of discipleship. Jesus didn't call us to an easy life. He told us to take up our cross and follow him. And to be serious about evangelism and discipleship will be hard work and we need to persevere. Well, Paul's a great example of that. Notice the second thing you see in this passage. How does Paul help us? Well, notice the way that he builds friendships. A key to gospel discipling is this building of friendships within the church and with other churches. And notice there's all sorts of things in this passage which show us how the Apostle Paul builds these kind of gospel friendships. You know Paul's great passage in in the book of 1 Corinthians... It's no surprise that this comes in 1 Corinthians. He's here in Corinth. The great passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. uh, The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts. And though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. And then he goes on in that passage towards the end. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I do not need you. So in this letter to to the Corinthians, Paul is later going to be writing saying, you need each other. We need each other. And that's a a funny thing to think about in our increasingly westernized individualism. And so often our our Christianity is pretty individualized. It's about me and maybe my witness and my discipleship. And if I've got anything left over, I might think about the discipleship of others. But the, the New Testament is much more corporate than that. There's much more togetherness, that we grow together, we learn together, we persevere together. So look at how Paul... Uh, builds friendships and develops friendships that help this gospeling to go on. It's quite subtle, but notice in chapter 18, verse 2, there's discipling going on with new believers. 
Uh, this this chap Aquila and his wife Priscilla, they've come from Rome. Uh, they're tent makers. They worked in the leather industry. Well, that was Paul's trade. And probably during the day, Paul would have done, worked on his trade to support himself, earning money. And Paul goes to stay with these complete strangers. But interestingly, he doesn't see that they are strangers. He sees them and they see him as brothers and sisters in Christ. And no doubt as they were sitting in the shade working on their leather and uh, building of their tent work, they would have talked and they would have discipled each other and encouraged each other. Christians from completely different places who didn't know each other but had the gospel in common and they came together and they shared together and they encouraged each other. I'm guessing that they prayed many times, particularly praying for Paul who at lunchtime would go to the synagogue and proclaim the gospel. Two groups of people who didn't know each other but came together and discipled each other. I wonder, on Sundays when there may be somebody in the church who's new or a new person gets baptised, what is your automatic reaction to that person? Particularly as the church grows, we've got our own kind of cliques and friendship groups and in some degree that's natural, but do we make a real effort to disciple the person that we don't know so well? To draw alongside the person on a Sunday who... We don't yet know. It's easy in a big church to kind of hide in our little crowd. But we see here with Paul, he deliberately makes an effort with new people. Because they are his brothers and sisters in Christ. But it works the other way as well. He's also discipling uh, good friends. Look at verse 5. Two great friends come and join him. Silas, who'd been in prison with him in Philippi. And Timothy, this young man who had, they had picked up on the journey. And they come following Paul to encourage him. So discipleship is with people we don't know so well and with our good friends. Another little observation. Have a look at verse 7. Discipling is not just with people, but it's also through the means that people have. There's this guy in verse 7, Titius Justus. What does he have? He has a property. And because of the persecution, that means that Paul isn't so welcome in the synagogue. The believers meet in this person's home. He's probably a wealthy man with a big home. Do you remember the early chapters of the book of Acts? Particularly chapter 2 and chapter 4. And there was these wonderful expressions of the believers sharing all that they had. There was nobody in need. Why? Because people who had means blessed and helped those who didn't have means. And here there's a wonderful example of a disciple who uses what he has to be a blessing to further the gospel. And in this example it was just something really practical. He opened up his home. Uh, I'm really thankful for so many people in our church who open up their homes. Many of you open up your homes. Because the home is one of the best places for discipleship. Discipling each other. Discipling our children. Discipling other people's children. And as we use the means that we have, we can help disciple each other. Last little example of these friendships. Have a look at verse 24 and 26. Because here you get the example of some more mature Christians who take under their wing a younger Christian and help disciple them. You've got this chap Apollos. And he's a knowledgeable guy. He's from Alexandria. That's in Egypt. He knows a lot of stuff, but there's some edges perhaps that need to be knocked off him. There's some things he can learn. And so alongside him draws these more mature Christians, Aquila and his wife Priscilla. And together, no doubt in a home, they disciple this young man, Apollos. This is a great example of a person giving time to disciple somebody from somewhere completely different. I think in many ways a sort of gospel partnerships. It's wonderful that as a church we're really serious about supporting other churches. Buckingham and Wheatley and praying for Bister 
and the wider gospel partnerships we share within the network of churches to which we belong. These partnerships really matter because it's not just about ourselves, worrying about ourselves. It's about saying what matters is the gospel. And there are so many different opportunities that we have to shape and mould other people. Now, there's lots of things in there, but here's the point I want us to take away. The point we see in this passage is that discipleship happens with lots of different people in lots of different ways at lots of different times. But it's happening, it's going on in this place, and it's helping to mature disciples. So here's a sort of application for you. Um, Who are you learning from? Who, Who do you deliberately and intentionally spend time with? Perhaps an older, more mature Christian who can help you. And who can pray with you and for you, who can encourage you. Every Christian needs a Christian who's been in the game longer to walk with them. If you haven't got someone, there's plenty of godly, mature people in this church who could be that person for you. Second question, who are you taking responsibility to disciple? Is there a newer Christian who perhaps doesn't know how to read their Bible like you might be able to know, who who doesn't really know how to pray? Who could you draw alongside and encourage? Because if every Christian has an older, more mature Christian leading them forwards and a younger, less mature Christian coming behind them, we disciple each other all the time. And they're they're great relationships that we need to work and nurture um, throughout this church. So two, two marks of discipleship, perseverance. Be encouraged with how Paul perseveres. The Christian life is not easy. And gospel friendships. As we get into one another's lives, as we get serious about holding people accountable and encouraging each other, we'll grow together. But the third mark you see, and this one I'd, I'd like to spend a bit of time on, it's a really important one in the life of the church. It's encouragement. I just want to talk to you about this picture for a moment. I think I showed you this picture in, in home groups a little while ago, and we had a, a conversation about it. This, is in many ways, is a kind of picture of the church, a picture of the Christian life. I don't know where you would be on this kind of mountain. We're all climbing, as it were. We want to reach glory. We want to be with our creator in heaven one day. And we journey on this mountain together. And we all, in different times and stages in our life, experience different things. See, down here, there's this sort of new believer, really keen, got all the gear. But the map's out and doesn't really know the way to go. Really keen to get into the scriptures, but doesn't really know how to read the scriptures. Well, who's going to help him? It's not his responsibility alone. It's our responsibility. There's this girl here, and she just wants to give up. The Christian life just got too difficult. There's too many big questions that haven't been answered. Her prayers haven't been answered. She's discouraged. Well, who's going to help her? Because it's not just her responsibility. You've got Christians here who are literally clinging on by their fingertips. Maybe the mum who's just exhausted or the person who's been suffering with ill health for so, so long and just is tired. Who's drawing alongside them to encourage them, to help them to keep going? There's the backslider, someone who's caught up in sin. But because no one's really holding them accountable, because no one really is asking those questions, no one even knows. But interesting, look, there is somebody who's seen this person backsliding. There's someone down here as well. Who's going to draw alongside this backslider and encourage them? Maybe this person from down below who can push them up the hill, the person from above who can pull them up the hill. Someone here who's just got comfortable, just been a Christian too long. 
but hasn't been serious about evangelism and discipleship and, and just needs someone to, to give them a nudge. Come on, you've got means, you've got time, you've got so much experience. How's your walk with the Lord? People in this church need you. And you've got some great examples here. Look, this is a great picture of discipleship. Someone who's helping somebody else. And so it could go on. We could illustrate this um, for hours. But the point is, as you look at that picture, where are you and where's the person who's sitting next to you? Perhaps you don't know. But if you ask them, they might share. And there might be a great opportunity for us then to disciple them. So I'd love you before next week, um, before you rush out the door and rush to church, take five minutes and ask yourself this question. When I come to church, how can I use those two hours or so to help make disciples? Because it's so easy, isn't it, just to come to church and to do our thing and then to go home and you think... But have I had an intentional conversation with someone? Have I helped move someone forward? Have I deliberately helped to encourage somebody? So here's a little challenge for you. For the next five weeks, take five minutes. Five minutes before the next five weeks. And just pray that prayer. Lord, how can I use the time at church this week to help disciple somebody else? And just put it to the test. And we'll come back to it in a few weeks' time. Has that made any difference? Because the amazing thing is that we all need encouragement, don't we? We all need encouragement. Come to chapter 18, verse 23. Paul is an amazing encourager. I just want to point to one verse that illustrates this really clearly. Verse 23. Paul's left Corinth by this time. But it says, after spending time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Another way that that word strengthening could have been translated is confirming He travelled around confirming all the disciples. What's the link between this word confirming and encouragement? Think about what encouragement is. I find a Christian who is struggling and what do they need? They need to have confirmed into their heart that the gospel is true. They need to have confirmed into their heart they can keep going. They need to have confirmed into their heart they're not alone. They need to have confirmed into their heart... They're struggling, but I've struggled too. And so we journey up this mountain together. As Paul goes around for all the different churches that he's planted and started, he is confirming, friends, the gospel is true. It is worth it. Evangelism's hard, discipleship's hard, but it is worth it because comfort isn't what we were called to. And as Paul traveled around strengthening the churches, what he was doing is he was confirming to them that the gospel was true. And encouraging them to keep going. One other little example of it. Look at it, verse 27. You've got this guy, Apollos. He's been discipled by Aquila and Priscilla. And we read of Apollos that he travels, verse 27, second half. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate. Proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. How was he a great help to them? Uh, Perhaps in many ways he kind of, because he was very articulate, he was able to come and really challenge these Jews who were giving these other Christians opposition. Maybe there was some of that, but I suspect as well what was going on. He encouraged them because he encouraged them in the gospel. He helped to give them confidence that the gospel was true. Because he took the scriptures and he stood up and refuted the Jews using the scriptures to encourage the other Christians, you've got the same scriptures and they're true. So keep going. Just a few final thoughts before we finish. As we focus 
on persevering, as we focus on building gospel friendships, as we focus on encouragement. There are two things in this passage that really help us with that. One is a foundation that lies underneath all this discipleship. And one thing is a kind of result that flows from it. Here's the first of them. Be encouraged that you're not alone in your discipleship. We're not alone. The sovereignty of God, that is, God who is in complete control of all things, knows exactly what he is doing. Discipleship, though it requires great intentionality on your part, on my part, it's not just our work, it's also a work of God. Come to chapter 17, verse 26. Last week, a great verse that Simon touched on, where Paul is in Athens, he says in verse 27, Speaking of God who has, sorry, verse 26, speaking of God who is Lord of all, he says, one man, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And this is the key bit. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And then don't you see that perfectly working in chapter 18? Because think about Aquila and Priscilla back in chapter 18, verse 2. What had caused them to leave Rome? persecution if you read the uh, roman historian the the roman general suetonius he wrote about this he said there was great controversy at this time the the emperor at the time was claudius and what was going on is there was lots and lots of antagonism and uh, and friction in the synagogues between christians and jews and so claudius who wanted peace in rome kicked all the jews out but god in his sovereignty knew exactly what he was doing guess who was kicked out of rome aquila and priscilla and guess who ended up in corinth Apollos, a younger believer who needed discipling. And guess who was there to disciple them? Aquila and Priscilla. God knew exactly what he was doing with all the chaos in Rome. And he brings these people to this place at this exact time to meet this exact individual. And then notice the brilliance of God, his absolute brilliance. Chapter 19, verse 1. Apollos stays in Corinth. And Paul then goes on to spread the gospel somewhere else. And what does Apollos do in Corinth? He builds on the work that Paul started. Have you ever heard the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, God made it grow. It's a wonderful verse and this is what it's referring to. Paul started the church and then along comes another disciple who himself had been discipled. Because in God's sovereignty, he'd brought someone into his life just at the right time to help Apollos mature because Paul, God knew that Paul would be moving on, but he would be leaving another man, Apollos, to do God's work. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of God moving people around, bringing people into our lives for the right moment. So be encouraged. Have a look too at chapter 18, verse 10. This lovely vision that God gives to Paul saying, Paul... I know you're struggling, but keep going. And what does he say? Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Verse 10, for I am with you and no one is going to harm you and attack you because I have many people in this city. Another picture of God's sovereignty. What has he done? Long before Paul ever got to Corinth, when Paul was on our map in a completely different place, spreading the gospel, what was God doing? He was preparing the hearts of some people in Corinth. And he says to Paul, Paul, don't give up. Even though you're intimidated by this great city, even though you've got no idea who's here, because I, God, have already prepared the hearts of people, and you're going to preach the gospel, and there will be hearts that will be changed. It encourages us in our evangelism, doesn't it? 
You look at your family, you look at your work colleagues, and you think, well, what's the point? Because none of them will ever change. And God is saying, I am with you. And you do not know what I've done in people's hearts. You don't know the conversations I've had in their lives before. Be faithful, because I am doing something. And in God's timing, he moves people around, and he brings people into our lives for us to disciple, for us to witness to, because this is God's mission. So that's the foundation for our discipleship, to be encouraged that God has placed you when you sit down on a Sunday morning deliberately next to the person you sit next to. Maybe it's because he wants you to encourage that person. God is a big God. We should be encouraged that he doesn't make mistakes and he is doing a lot more in the background than we probably ever give him credit for. But notice what this foundation leads to. The God's sovereignty is the foundation. Discipleship is our focus. But what is the result? It's witness, isn't it? Chapter 19, verse 9. Opposition continues. Paul continues to be um, challenged by the Jews. Some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. There is the discipleship. God and his wisdom is enabled there still to be a meeting place despite the difficulties. There's the sovereignty. There's the discipling. And look at verse 10. What does it lead to? This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. How did all these people hear the word of the Lord? Because the disciples who had been discipled were sent out. God in his wisdom brings people together to build them up that they might get sent out. And the gospel continues to spread. And so in that sense, discipleship and evangelism aren't two different things. They're really importantly connected because the better we disciple, the better we will share our faith. And as we share our faith, more people will become Christians and will join this journey of discipling. And that is exactly what is going on in the book of Acts. I know comfort is easier. I know that sometimes we will just want to be comfortable. I have those moments in my life frequently. But I want to encourage us tonight. Let's be a church that trusts in the sovereignty of God. We're not alone in this great commission that God gave us. Go and make disciples of all nations. And what does it say at the end? And surely I will be with you. So this isn't something we do alone. That's the foundation, trusting in God's sovereignty. We're not alone. Let's commit to discipleship, to that perseverance, to building gospel friendship. And particularly, let's commit to encouragement. That should be our focus as a church. And let's rejoice in the wonderful opportunities we then have to witness. Because, friends, that should be the result of a true disciple-making church. There is a very, very big world out there. And there are a lot of lost people. But we have a great God, don't we? And we have a great gospel. So let's continue praying as a church, as we've seen all the way through Acts so far, so that we would witness one day that the Lord would indeed add to our number daily those who are being saved. Amen.